You ready? Go ahead. Go ahead whenever you go ahead and do the intro, and then and then I'll read. The- oh yeah. Oh, I always forget about that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Why do I always forget? Why do I, it's not like we've never have we, we've done like twenty something of these things. It's not like you know. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Born Too Late podcast. Where me, Jay Castro, along with my friend Josh Rutledge here, we we talk to uh, musicians, label owners, writers, uh, DJs, anyone that's that's making a fuss in in underground music right now. Josh, who do we got on tonight? So tonight, our guest needs no introduction, but we'll give him one anyway. <laughs> Jeff Drake was a, like that. Yeah, Jeff Drake was a founding member of the legendary rock and roll band, The Joneses. This band's influence on future generations of sleazy, glammy, punk rock and roll bands cannot be emphasized enough. I still consider Pillbox to be one of the greatest rock and roll songs ever written. The band's debut album, Keeping Up With The Joneses, is a stone-cold classic that has largely gone unappreciated for the last 35 years. In addition to his many years as singer-guitarist for the Joneses, Jeff was also a member of the band Amanda Jones and played in the Vice Principals with his brother, Scott. Jeff Drake is the author of the book, Guilty, My Life as a Member of the Joneses, a Heroin Addict, a Bank Robber, and a Federal Inmate, which will be out soon on Hozak Books. It is our pleasure to welcome Jeff to the program. Cool, man. Well, <clears throat> Jeff, thank you so much for for coming on our our, our humble program, man. We appreciate you lending us your yeah. your evening. Sure. Thanks for having me. Of course. So, uh, if you don't mind, we can jump right into it. Sure. Let's go. All right. So, I want to start with uh, with with young, impressionable Jeff Drake. Okay. okay. <laughs> so I want to know. I want to know what age what, are we talking about? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, maybe. Uh, I don't know. Whenever it's so different. Let me let me just get to the question first, and then and then you you can answer. Um, so we just I was just curious what, uh, what band or musician prompted you to want to get up and play an instrument or start writing music? Um. Well, that's easy. The my uh, my mom went and took me to see The Song Remains the Same, the Led Zeppelin movie. And it, when it came out in about 1975, I think, I was 14, 15 years old. And uh, I wanted to be Jimmy Page. Didn't nice. quite make it. <laughs> You're close, man. You came closer than most. <laughs> okay. Okay. So at what age? Oh, you said you were 14 or 15? Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> I was already a Led Zeppelin fan. And I... I I loved the Rolling Stones already, and I was already into the New York Dolls and stuff like that. But it was actually seeing that movie and seeing Jimmy Page 
uh, play guitar and stuff that made made me decide I wanted to play guitar. Yeah, isn't that interesting how watching a performance has that much more of an impact as opposed to just like listening to like Led Zeppelin records? Yeah, it really had a big effect on me. I saw that movie. I went back, I think, maybe three or four times while I was in the theater and saw it. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I, I don't think I've ever seen that. On, no, I haven't seen it on a big screen. Oh. Um, I've seen it plenty of times on on, on streaming or on uh, video. Um, right. So could you tell us a little bit about how the Joneses got started and just how you uh, – ended up playing with Steve Olson and then just starting that band. Okay. Uh, well, I, uh, I was going to high school up here in Merced, California. And I was originally from Southern California, Anaheim area. And um, when I graduated high school, I moved down to Southern California again. And um, one of the first nights I was down there, I went to the cuckoo's nest, the famous cuckoo's nest down in Costa Mesa uh, to see agent orange. And uh, unfortunately, they canceled and instead was a band playing called the Aristocats, which was Steve Olson uh, playing bass, Joe Escalani on drums, and this guy named uh, uh, Johnny McCarty playing guitar. And um, they were playing um, Down the Road a Peace and, uh, you know, all the, you know, some songs that I knew and loved. And the, the main thing that drew me to them was they were wearing uh, brothel creepers. And um, mm. I had a poster in my room with the professionals on it, uh, Steve Jones and Paul Cook. They were wearing brothel creepers. I always wanted a pair of those shoes, so I went up after they were done playing and asked them where they got those shoes. And uh, they told me, and we started talking, and I told them that they needed a, a guitar player. And so we started playing together. And then me and Steve Olson were in a couple uh, rockabilly bands like that, and I kept getting fired. And then he would get in another band and bring me along and I would get fired again. And finally we decided we should probably start our own band. And that's when we got together with Mitch and Ron Emery and started the Joneses. Interesting. So have you heard of Steve Olson before you met him? Like, no, did you know he was I had a skateboarder no idea. and stuff? I had no idea who he was. I didn't know what skateboarding was. Um, when he told me he was a skateboarder, I thought he was kidding. You know, I had a skateboarder. <laughs> I had a skateboard when I was a kid, but I didn't realize it was, you know, an industry and, and that he was the world champion or anything like that. I just, we got along good. We had similar musical tastes. Uh, we liked to have fun. And then as I was around him more, I started realizing that he was this famous guy uh, that all these people worship, you know, for his uh, amazing skateboarding ability. Yeah, yeah. So <clears throat> the Joneses got voted best live band Best in, loved in, band. Best what? Best loved band. Oh, was it best loved? Yeah. Best okay. Loved. By LA Weekly, the readers poll. Yeah. 1983. So what, yeah. What did you guys think of that when you saw that? Um, well, it was exciting. You know, we were a relatively new band. We'd already gone through a couple personnel changes by that point, but the first Jones's gig was in December, uh, Christmas Eve of 1981. Oh, so wow. in 1983, we'd only been around a year and a half or so. And um, uh, we knew we were getting really popular because we were drawing big crowds and stuff. And there was sort of a thing happening. Um, but that was really cool was was uh, winning the L.A. Weekly contest, because the, in those days, anyway, the L.A. Weekly was like the local Bible for live music and bands and stuff. And everybody read it every Thursday when it came out. 
and um, that was really cool. That's cool. Yeah. What, so tell us a, a little bit about what it was like playing in a band in Hollywood at that time. Cause I mean, you got, you got the, like the punkers on one hand, you got like the, the sunset strip guys on the other. And it's like, you guys were like in the middle. It seemed. Right. right. Um, well, uh, it was really crazy. Looking back, I was really brazen thinking I could move from a little place like Merced and go down to LA and sort of make it there because I was just, beginning as a musician really i mean i was i was still really young i was only 19 or 20 years old and i hadn't started playing until i was maybe 16 or 17 so i was still really new and um but it was great and that's exactly why we started doing what we were doing is because at that time there was hardcore punk and there was uh, the rocky billy thing was kind of dying out uh motley crew was just starting to get known um you know there was bands like quiet riot and stuff like that on the sunset strip and we didn't really fit in with any of that we kind of wanted to be well when people would ask us we would tell us that we were like if um uh eddie cochran met the new york dolls at chuck berry's house that's what we would say <laughs> that that was the kind of music we wanted to play and nobody was really doing that nobody's really playing just rock and roll it was kind of hardcore punk or heavy metal or whatever um we just wanted to play good sort of 50s based rock and roll but not be uh like a revivalist thing not to um I mean, that's why I kept getting kicked out of those rock and big bands was I wasn't uh, I wasn't traditional enough. You know, I put distortion on my guitar. And, uh, I, you know, it wasn't just howdy doody is how I called it. <laughs> so were there some other bands in Hollywood at the time that, that you <clears throat> were playing around with that you really, really liked? Uh, yeah, there was. Um, Especially when I, I moved up to L.A. from Orange County in, uh, after our second tour in the summer of 1983. And um, right about that time, we started hanging out with uh, Texano Horseheads and the Screaming Sirens, especially. Those were two bands that we played with a lot. The Red Hot Chili Peppers were uh, just sort of get, uh, coming out. They were really popular. We did some shows with them. Um, the Dickies, the Gun Club. Um, mm. You know, all those bands were sort of happening in 1983, which is when we sort of uh, went from being a, an Orange County band to an L.A. band, really, because that's where I, I, I moved there. So <clears throat> with all the stuff that's going on, and like you were saying, the, the, the Sunset Strip scene was kind of starting to kick up. Why? And, and Okay, so the first time I, I heard the Joneses, was on a, a compilation called Bloodstains, Bloodstains Across California. And um, I'm not familiar with that one, actually. Yeah, it's a weird little thing. Anyway, <laughs> you guys are a type of band where you, if once, once you hear the Joneses, you instantly like, you instantly like the band. If you like rock and roll, you like the Joneses. You love the Joneses. Cool. My question is, why do you think you guys kind of got overlooked? Because I listen to your band and I think greatness. <laughs> so, but like, what happened? What, what do you think happened? Like, why we didn't become Guns N' Roses is OG. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> because you should have. Well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, well, you know, it was, it was weird when we first came out. Um, 
actually the first record that I that, that we did uh, that came out was a BYO compilation, the Better Youth Organization called Someone Got Their Head Kicked In Tonight. And then we did Pillbox and Graveyard Rock on that thing. And um, the rest of the bands were pretty hardcore punk. And the Stern Brothers told us that we got more hate mail than all the rest of the bands got <laughs> fan mail combined because we weren't we didn't really fit in with that record. So that um, that rumor's true then. Yeah, that that really that, that's what they told us anyway. Um, oh and uh, you know, we we got really popular in LA about 1984. We had a celebrity manager, Danny Sugarman. You know, the the Doors author guy was our manager. And we were the best drawing band in town. Um, the record companies were like, uh, they're crawling all over each other trying to sign us. But just some bad decisions. Um, we kind of scared them away a little bit because our lifestyle was kind of edgy. And um, and then there were some personnel changes at the record labels and the wrong people were in the wrong chairs at the wrong time. Mm -hmm. And um, we sort of got bypassed. It got to a point where a couple of years after that, 84, we still hadn't gotten signed, but the bands in town that sort of came up after us that were sort of copying themselves after us, like Guns N' Roses and Faster Pussycat and LA Guns and bands like that, they were all getting deals and we still didn't. And um, part of it was because of our reputation as, as guys that like to party and stuff like that. And, and uh, I think we were just a little too... Um, I don't know. Our manager didn't have a very good reputation. He was sort of a drug addict um, and, and known for that. Uh, uh, we were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. I mean, the people loved us. We drew good crowds and had wild shows, and that was all cool. And and the labels, uh, they all came, you know, sniffing around, but I'm not sure they liked what they saw or really knew how to peg us because we weren't heavy yeah. metal. We weren't punk rock. They weren't sure what we were. I would have to go have lunch with these guys and say, so what's what's up with you guys? What are you anyway? And um, I thought that was easy. You know, I thought, uh, you know, Chuck Berry based punk rock. That's or not punk rock, rock, Chuck Berry based rock and roll. That's kind of what we were. But that was yeah. so different from what was happening. It was foreign to them. So I remember hearing that BYO comp and it being like a really important, like, influence as i was getting into punk rock and everything but of course your band is like one of the major bands that made an impression on me with that record and i i still think pillbox is one of the greatest songs ever written by anyone oh, thanks thank you so i'm just <laughs> curious to, to hear the story about how you wrote that song and and what the inspiration was <laughs> well um I wrote that song when I was 16. It was actually like the wow. second song I ever wrote in my life. So when people tell me, oh, this is a great song, I feel like everything I did after that was just going downhill. You know, I sort of peaked, <laughs> sort of peaked when I was 16 years old. And I've been trying to capture that, you know, ever since. But no, I, I can remember where I was when I wrote that song. I was in the front room of, of uh, a friend of mine's house that I was friends with in high school. I'm actually still friends with him. And um, I had this brilliant idea of comparing like uh, – a girl to drugs, you know, and I was 16 years old. I didn't have a lot of experience with girls or drugs at that time. Uh, so it's just a miracle that it came out uh, as anything more than just a bunch of BS. Uh, I wish I could go back and change some of the words now that I know a little bit more about girls and drugs. Um, but I just, it blows my mind that people like it so much because there was even a time um, in the mid eighties, the Jones stopped playing that song because um I didn't really like it that much. I thought there were too many chord changes. And um, 
it wasn't really until like sort of the mid nineties when the internet came out uh, that somehow that song sort of took on a life of its own. And we started playing it again because we were getting all this uh, sort of feedback or I was um, about what a great song it was. And uh, I think that, like I said, I, I blame that sort of on the internet because uh, people all over the world could hear that song. And um, so then we had to start playing it again. That mm. song's made me more money than any, all the other songs put together. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I don't really like it that much. I don't think it's the best song I ever wrote. That's for sure. Really? Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. yeah, we love it. <laughs> too many chord changes, man. It's too busy. <laughs> so so thinking all these years later, how do you how do you feel uh, your debut album Keeping with the Joneses holds up over over time? Uh I don't know. I I wasn't really happy with it when when we did it. Um, that was the first time we were really in the studio for more than just a couple hours um, at a time. So it seemed like it took a long time to make it. And, um, you know, there was a lot of drugs, like the, there's a lot of cocaine in the, in the mic closets and stuff. And it seemed like a lot of wasted time. And it kind of has that eighties overproduced sound. And uh, I think the criminals record is much more, um, I like that record more. It sounds like more what I was hearing in my head, you know, when we made it. Um, I was kind of disappointed with keeping up with the Joneses. Um, I think there's too much harmonica. Um, you know, I could I could pick it apart like that, but I I just I think the Criminals record is more. It's got more energy. Uh, it just sounds more dangerous. I think um, keeping up with the Joneses. Um, I don't know. It seemed like they were trying to, uh, the guys that were producing were trying to make, well, they pretty much just recorded us live. So I can't say they really changed much of anything, but, um, I don't know. I was just never really happy with that one. Hmm. So the criminals record would, would then probably be what you think is the definitive Jones's record. That's what I would say that, like I said, that was the record when we made it. And since then that sounded most like what I was hearing in my head, you know, and, and, uh, yeah, we were, and we were young when we, when, when we made that record. I think I was, uh, we recorded that in the fall of 82. So I was 21 and, um, and we were, we were seriously partying. Like I had just gotten a big jar of Quaaludes in the mail and uh, we were drinking Jack Daniels and shooting heroin. You know, Steve Jones from the sex whistles was supposed to produce that record. And, um, ended up not doing it but that's too bad because that would have i think that would have uh it would have made a, a different sounding record and i think we would have gotten a lot more of attention than we did otherwise wow for sure you want to hear the story yes <laughs> okay <laughs> do you even uh, have to ask <laughs> okay uh jones's were playing in new york city and this is a, the first tour we did in this in the fall of 82 and uh we ran into to Steve Jones at the A7 Club, this club we were playing. And he came there because he thought we named our band after him. And so that's why he came down. Oh. And after after we played, he talked to us and introduced himself. And 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 that was that. And then um, when we got back to L.A., we did a show in Anaheim at this place called Radio City, opening for a band he was in called Checkered Past with Michael DeBars and uh, I think the Sales Brothers and Clem Burke, maybe. And um, I sat and talked to him at the bar and I was telling him, you know, those professional singles, they sound great. But at that time, the professionals album uh, didn't see it coming and had come out. 
I said, that, that doesn't sound as good. What, you know, what happened? And he was telling me, oh, you know, I produced the singles. That's why they sound so good. Somebody else produced the LP. That's why it sounds so crappy. And I said, well, we're about to do a record. Do you want to produce our record? And he said, sure, I'd love to. Because at this point, he was living in L.A. And so we started hanging out with him and getting high with him and stuff. And he came and, and played with us at this club in uh, the South Bay called uh, Mr. Froggies or something like that. He got up on stage and did Chatterbox and Born to Lose. And um, then when it came time to record the, the record, he said he wanted $1,500 to produce it. And we didn't have anything close to that. We were broke junkies, you know, and he said, sorry. Anyway, as, as it got closer to, to time to record, his price kept going down. And finally, when it came to be the, the night we we're going to record, he said, well, just come pick me up and get me loaded and I'll do it. And uh, we, we were in Orange County and he was in Hollywood. Nobody wanted to drive up there and get him. <laughs> and get him loaded, which is a shame because, like I said, had we actually done it with him, I think things would have been a lot different. I, I would still regret that. But, um, but yeah, he was supposed to produce that record uh, initially, and we just couldn't afford him. And then, by the like I said, by the time he lowered his price to come pick me up and get me loaded, nobody really wanted to do it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, that would have changed things for sure. Yeah, just to have his name on the record would have been a big deal. And I'm sure he could have gotten a, a better guitar sound. And I mean, I mean, who knows? It might not have been for the better, but I have a feeling it would have been. Yeah, yeah. Um, so one one more question about, about the Joneses, and then, and then we'll, we'll move on. Um, one of the things that really strikes me of, about the Joneses is you guys look like your style so um, handsome <laughs> yeah, yeah i mean in in a in a uh what do they call it like in a, a non-gay uh, char charming rogue kind of way you know like <laughs> okay. but i wanted to ask you guys i wanted to ask you for you guys how important was your style you know back then um how like do you think style is important in rock and roll i think it is important um and our style was just what we were like pretty much the clothes that we wore on stage was what we were wearing during the day. I mean, it wasn't like, except for maybe Paul Mars when he was in the band, he would get dressed up a little bit, but he was just kind of a prissy guy anyway. But like <laughs> when you, when you see bands like um, say Hanoi rocks, uh, yeah. I remember the first time somebody gave me a Hanoi rocks album. was at a junk show say, Oh, you're going to love these guys. And I looked at them and I said, wow, they look really cool. But then I didn't really like the music. And I think that uh, a lot of their popularity was just based on how they looked. You know, somebody was putting a lot of money into their clothes and their appearance and stuff. And uh, we weren't, we were just kind of street urchins. You know, we would get our clothes at secondhand stores or, or whatever. But um, I've always thought that, you know, your, your image is really important um, to just sort of get, a, get across what you're trying to get across. And luckily for us is uh, that was just how we were anyway. I've never been really good at putting on a, 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 a an act different from what I what I am anyway, you know. Yeah. So, what are your uh, memories of playing with uh, Amanda Jones? Ah, I love that band. Actually, that was the, my favorite band that I was ever in was Amanda Jones. Wow. Better than the Joneses. Better than the Vice Principals. Um, I love writing songs and working with Mandy. She's great. She's funny. She's smart. She can sing like a bird, you know, she's easy on the eyes. Um, we were friends. We'd actually dated a little bit about 10 years before that. So we knew each other well. Um, 
the original drummer Sean and the bass player Keith were, were friends of mine. It was just a great band as far as we had a good time. Um, it was a really creative period for me as far as writing songs with Mandy. I think I played my best guitar playing probably on that record. And um, it was a it was a really relief for me not to have to sing because I never really enjoyed singing. And I could just play guitar and sing backup vocals and write songs, which is kind of where I felt more comfortable and let Mandy be the one um, sort of in the spotlight. And uh, she looked better than I did anyway. <laughs> True. And you guys only released like the one EP, right? That's right. It was a, I think it was a five song EP for Bomp. And mm. um, that was, uh, we did that on the, on the strength of our very first show was uh, we played the coconut teaser and uh, after our set, Greg Shaw, the, the guy that on Bump came up to Mandy and said, I want to record you guys. And that was our very first show. We were kind of shocked. Um, wow. We had rehearsed a long time because Manny wanted to be really good before we played out. But I finally uh, drew a line and said, we got to do a show, man. We've been rehearsing too long. And um, yeah, he came up and he went to re record us right away. So we did that. Uh, we did that EP for Bump um, right after the band started playing live. Wow, nice. It's a good it's a good band. I really I really uh like I said, I think that was the best band I was ever in. Were you happy with that the way that EP turned out? Yeah, pretty much. Um I produced it with Greg Keane and uh you know Mandy's voice is great. Like I said, um the guitar setup I had sounded really good. I thought my playing was was uh was really strong for me anyway. And um the other guys in the band were solid. I just, uh, yeah, I thought that that was probably um, even more than Criminals. That record probably sounded um, more uh, what I was hearing in my head than than anything else that that I recorded was Amanda Jones. Oh wow! We sort of wanted to, we sort of wanted to be uh, like I was saying, the Joneses wanted to be a, you know, if, if uh, Eddie Cochran met the New York Dolls at Chuck Berry's house, we sort of wanted to be Amanda Jones if like uh, Blondie was if uh, Debbie Harry was singing for the Avengers. Which kind of wanted to sound like that. Oh, nice, nice. Um, so I want to talk to to you a little bit about Vice Principal's album. Uh -huh. Do you were you happy with the way that turned out? Do you think it still holds up? Yeah, yeah, I do. I um... <laughs> you had a, a smile on your face, like <laughs> you wanted to say something <laughs> else. <laughs> well, I uh, I don't know. That record, it, that, that that was a funny thing because that record was actually supposed to be a, a solo record for me. The Vice Principals, um, it never was really supposed to be a band, at least from the start. I was oh. I was setting things up to do a solo record, and um, me and my brother were kind of estranged at that point. And I tried to bury the hatchet a little bit by recording a song that he did with his old band, The Suicide Kings, called uh, Switchblade. And uh, so I asked him if it was okay if I record that, and I asked him if he wanted to sing backups on that song. And we talked a little bit, and we decided, uh, well, maybe we should just do a band, and you know, we'll we'll trade off singing and and like that. Um, but as it turned out, uh, I didn't get to sing but one song, and um, that was too bad because I thought it would have been a little bit better if I had done more singing. And I thought they mixed my vocals down really low on that one. That's too bad because that was a good song. Um, but that's I like the way that record sounds. The guitars sound really good, and yeah, um, 
yeah, I, I thought, um, you know, my brother, he, he sings the way he sings. I thought, I thought it would sound better had I been the singer, but that's just because I, I like the way I sing better than my brother does, but that's just my personal choice. A lot of people like the way my brother sings and, uh, neither one of us are really trained singers. So it's not like, uh, I'm Pavarotti and he's not, but, um, <laughs> you know, I don't know, especially with the songs I wrote. I just thought that, uh. I would have sung him better. Not that he did a bad job, but um, he didn't. I, yeah, he he did really good, but um, I don't know. I thought it would have been better if I would have been the singer. But so I didn't want to be this. I didn't want to be the singer. I wanted to sing some, <laughs> but not all the songs. But um, we got to a point where I said, "Hey, I thought I was going to get to sing some of these songs," and Scott said, "Well, what am I going to do while you're singing?" And I said, well, I don't know. You, you you spend half the time down in the audience anyway. Go get a beer, you know. Go get a blowjob. Do something, you know. Um, and I'll I'll sing while you're. You can play tambourine or something. But anyway, that's actually why the band broke up was because uh, Scott didn't want to relinquish the microphone, and I wanted to sing a little bit more than just the one song. So, did you guys play many live shows? Yeah, at all? you yeah, did? We did. We just weren't together for that long. We were only together for about a year. Um, oh. We did a big festival in, in uh, Las Vegas called The Shakedown. And we played a lot of shows at, in LA at the Garage and the Foothill. And um, we played in San Francisco and Sacramento. So we were playing a lot, but it was just a sort of compressed period of time, just for about a year, maybe 2000, 2001. I think, I think our first rehearsal was in February of 2000. We recorded Memorial Day weekend of 2000, and by April of 2001, we were we were done. So I wanted to talk about your your book is coming out. Yeah. So we really wondered, like, what was it that kind of inspired you to actually write a book and start collecting your thoughts and stories for this book well i have a friend um a guy named jeff davis that he actually uh put out the anita fix ep that the jones did and he's been telling me for about 30 years that i should write a book and um i just didn't sound like something i wanted to do i didn't think i had enough discipline to sit down and, and write a book um if somebody wanted to write a book about me i would help them um i thought that would be more likely to happen um so i just never really was serious about the idea and then in uh january of 2021 my wife left me and i had a lot of time on my hands and um i was just sitting around bumming out feeling sorry for myself and i was talking to my friend jeff davis he said you know jeff now would be the perfect time to write that book and i thought you know maybe you're right uh and he's like you know uh, do it before it's too late. You know, you're, you're not a young man anymore. You know, you might not get another chance, uh, blah, blah, blah. And so I did it. Um, it took me a long time to get started. I would start out writing about an hour a week. And I figured at that rate, it would probably take me a hundred years to finish. And that went on for a couple months. And then finally I just said, you know, I gotta get serious about this. And so I started writing every day. And then I got where I kind of got some momentum and was enjoying it. And, um, I would do it until my back hurt and then I would stop for the day. And, uh, the, the really intensive writing part took me about two months, um, about four months altogether. But the first couple of months, um, I really wasn't doing it. I was just kind of thinking about doing it. 
so how did you um get with the the guys from hozak <laughs> um well once i was done with it i figured you know i gotta find somebody to put this out i didn't want it self-published i thought that would be lame you know i didn't want to do like a vanity press or anything like that um so i asked my friend iris berry who has a little publishing house in la if she wanted to do it and she was too busy uh she said, you know, her, her release schedule was full. Um, we've been friends for like 40 years, but she just couldn't or didn't want to do it. Just, I don't know. Anyway, um, I think I I think I posted a thing on Facebook or mentioned it to somebody that I had written the book. And this guy on Facebook named John Tyree um, suggested Hozak. And I had never heard of him. I didn't know what they were or what they did or anything. And... Um, I was afraid at that point that I was going to have to probably hit up every publisher in the world with my hat in my hand saying, Oh, please put my book out. I worked so hard on it. <laughs> and I have a really interesting story. Don't you want to hear it? Right. Anyway, I, I thought I would, I thought it was, it was going to take a long time to find someone to put it out. And Hozak was the very first people that I approached. And the thing that shocked me was um, they knew who I was. They were Jones's fans. And so that, that was uh, to my benefit actually, um, I didn't have to explain who I was or what kind of story it was. They knew the sort of highlights of it, um, lowlights, whatever that, you know, the, they knew some of the story um, and they were, they were real excited from the very beginning. And so um, I didn't have to shop my book. It was just, I, I contacted one guy and they said yes before they even read it. And um, in fact, they didn't read it until just within the last couple of weeks. I turned it into oh. about a year ago, but they they agreed to do it sight unseen just based on my reputation, which I thought was, I couldn't believe it. I mean, I'd never written anything. So nobody, they didn't know if I could string, you know, three words together, but, um, but they agreed to do it. And then uh, finally, actually last week, they, um, they said, wow, this is really great job. So all that time, they, they had no idea. They were just going on based on, I guess, a feeling they had about me. I'm not sure. Well, if they were fans, I, I'm sure they knew there were lots of stories in there. <laughs> <laughs> but like I said, they might not know if I could string three words together. In fact, I was really worried because when I saw their website, I noticed all the artists that they did, like Paul Collins and Mark Belfort and all those guys, yeah. had written their books with another author. Like, a, I don't oh. know if it was a ghostwriter or, but some actual author helped them with their books. And I just wrote by mine by myself. And so I was worried that, uh, that mine would just be crappy. Um, and I was, I was afraid it would be too boring. Anyway, um, what was the question? <laughs> um, oh, I just want to ask how, how you hooked up with the Hozak guys. Okay. And, yeah. How I, yeah. With those. I just, I just sent him an email. I, I just, Went to their website and had a contact us thing. I just sent him a message out of the blue. Said, "Hey, I'm Jeff Drake. I wrote this book." They said, "Jeff, wow, we know all about you." I'm like, <laughs> "Great, <laughs> that makes that makes it easy, you know." Cut right um, to the chase that way. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Um, so I, I lied. I, I do want to bring up Don't the Joneses lie. one more time. <laughs> And I, I just figured want, we'd talk about the Joneses a little bit. <laughs> I just wanted to to ask about the the music being reissued. Um, the oh, the stuff that's coming out now. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, what can people expect uh, from the from these reissues of Jones's music? 
Okay. Well, it's three. Uh, it's three separate releases, so it's kind of a trilogy, if you will. It's um, they're calling it Jones and uh, Discography Volumes One Through Three, and it's everything that the Joneses recorded uh, from the beginning to you know the last things they recorded uh, on the you know spread out over three albums. Uh, the first one came out in June. It's um, it's it's on a label called Project Out. My cat scratching me. It's on a label called Projectile Platters. Um, this guy named Nat in Orange County, and it's, he did a really good job on the first one. Um, came out, in, I think, June the 1st, and he said, like in the first two weeks, it had done better than all nine of his releases the previous month. So I guess it's doing really well. And nice. uh, volumes two and three are supposed to be out, I think, within the next week or two. And um, Oh, wow. And so if you get those three records, you'll have everything that Jones has ever recorded. Everything, <laughs> not much, <laughs> but yeah, there it is, it's all there. So, by the time this episode airs, all of this music should be available. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how long it takes you to put your episodes together, but yeah, um, we're talking on July the 15th. I talked to Nat uh, a couple days ago, and he said, uh, next week, that was last week, so. I'm expecting maybe next week or the week after uh, that volumes two and three will be available. Volume one's been out since June the 1st. Cool, cool. Uh, so what was the label again? It's called Projectile Platters. Projectile. And he has another label called Puke and Vomit that he does mostly hardcore bands. Um, and I guess his projectile, he's got some kind of hang up with vomiting. I don't know what Puke and Vomit is. <laughs> projectile platters i'm not sure why he doesn't drink or anything so i don't get that part um but anyway um yeah so that's what it's called you can get it i guess at your local independent record store he's got european distributors um i think he does mail order um i guess that's how you can get it okay that is awesome well, we, we thought that if we were going to talk to you, we would chat a little bit about the Rolling Stones. Okay. I like the we, we know you, you like the Rolling Stones. So. My Rolling Stones shirt on. So <laughs> we just wondered, like, if, if, especially for the benefit maybe of some of our younger listeners who somehow missed the greatness of the Rolling Stones, if, if you had like a handful of uh, Desert Island Rolling Stones records or like your, your, maybe your ultimate albums by the stones well i uh i collect rolling stones bootlegs from the 70s and i've got a bunch of those that are really good but those are hard to come by and they're starting to get really expensive but my favorite musical performance of all time is the rolling stones doing the chuck berry song let it rock um recorded live at leeds i think in 1970 uh it was the a b-side of brown sugar when it came out in the Everywhere except the United States, I think. Um, but that's my fav favorite musical performance of all time. I really like when the Stones do Chuck Berry. Um, like the songs on Get Your Yaya's Out, uh, Little Queenie, Carol. Yeah. Um, you know, they do a round and round on that new Elma Combo thing that I think is really good. Um, I like, I like uh, listening to the Stones live because you can hear what they're really doing. I mean, their studio records are great. I just like most other people, I think Excels on Main Street is probably their best record. Um, I first heard that when my aunt got it for me for Christmas in 1970. 
four, I think. So I was uh, I was thirteen, and when that record came out, uh, people were were slagging it. I remember Lester Bangs wrote a really bad review of it. Nobody really liked mm. that record. They said the production was muddy. There was no really up tempo songs, and it was just a downer and a bummer. But I liked it immediately. I remember, um, especially side one. I would put side one on and play it over and over and over and over. And it took me a while to get into sides two, three, and four. And I can remember listening to um, All Down the Line and thinking it just sounded like a bunch of noise. It took me a while, maybe a year or so, being a teenager to sort of sort out what was going on in that song and um, get to where I understood it and the words and the instruments and stuff. But uh, yeah, Exiles on Main Street is what I would, uh, if you're going to buy one Stones record, I would get that one. I also, one I like that doesn't get a lot of love is... Uh, it's only rock and roll. I think that's because that was the Stones album, that uh, the first one that I got when it first came out, that I was waiting for it to come out. I think I was about 13, and um, that's when I was just discovering the Rolling Stones. And so that record has a special place in my heart. Um, it's only rock and roll, but I like it. Nice. So let me ask you a quick question. Did you have a, a similar experience when you saw Gimme Shelter? as you did when you saw Song Remains the Same? No. Well, except, well, yes. <laughs> no. Um, yes, in the way that when I saw that, I really wanted to be the Stones in 1969. Uh -huh. I wasn't sure if that was possible. I know now that it wasn't. Uh, but it wasn't like when I saw uh, the Song Remains the Same and just wanted really... That's what really inspired me to play guitar. Um, but by the time I saw Gimme Shelter, I was a little bit older. And um, I was already very, very much into the Stones, especially that time period from, say, 69 to 72. Um, at that point, for me, they were just gods. you know. They're, um, and after the 72 tour, I mean, they were kind of like 69 through 72. They were just kind of like this pirate ship that was just... Uh, sailing along from town to town and just, you know, with all the debauchery and, you know, of course I've read all the books and stuff, but then after that, it, it kind of changed, you know, the, the tours got bigger. Um, but like that 72 tour with Bobby Keys and Jim Price on horns and stuff. Um, the Cockhookers blues movie had a big impact on me. Um, ladies and gentlemen, the Rolling, Rolling Stones is a really good one. Um, so that tour especially that I have a lot of bootlegs from that tour 72 tour and that record excels on main street. That's sort of where I see sort of the peak of stones, but yeah, those, those movies had a big effect on me. I really wanted to be uh, sort of the sixth rolling stone. <laughs> if I could uh, somehow manage to um, move heaven and earth and make that happen. But of course I knew that was uh, physically impossible. Yeah. Well, there's always, it's always hope. And you, like I said, you came closer by starting the Joneses. <laughs> you got closer than anyone else. Someday time travel may be um, possible. Who knows? Um, who knows? Yeah, I never know. Well, Jeff, we've taken enough of your time this evening. That's been fun. Thanks for yeah, having me. Of course. Of course. Thank you so much. And um, I just want to say, Go and to our listeners to go and get these Joneses reissues on the projectile book. platters and the book. 
um, that will be out soon on Hozak Books and Records. Guilty. And the my book life is called Jones. The book is called Guilty. Uh, my life as a member of the Joneses, a heroin addict, a bank robber, and a federal inmate by Jeff Drake on Hozak Books. Get that? I'm surely packed, packed with stories. And I, I'm for one going to get that. <laughs> What's that? And a couple what? There's a couple in there. There's a couple stories in there. <laughs> oh, sure there is. <laughs> it will be our summer reading for sure. There you go. Oh, it's yeah. good, good for on the beach. <laughs> yeah. Did they say about how long that's going to be coming out? Um, I'm expecting next month from um, oh great from what they're saying. They're they're getting into the layout and stuff right now. Um, I think I think next month. Yeah, we're about the middle of July, so I would say yeah, next month. Awesome. Um, uh, yeah, that's fantastic. Um, how about pictures? Are there going to be lots of pictures yeah. that haven't been out? Oh, I think I great. I think I gave them about two hundred pictures wow. uh, to put oh, in the book. Nice. So a lot of a lot of pictures, and that's the that's the great thing about these. Uh, these records that are coming out on projectile platters, there's, there's a lot for people that have all the Jones and stuff already. Um, there's a lot of photos and I've written liner notes and stuff. And this guy, uh, this guy, Nat at projectile platters, he put a lot into it. He did a really good job sort of making the definitive sort of Jones's archival thing with, it's got everything and pictures and liner notes and, you know, if you, um, who played on what and where it was recorded, all, all the information. Oh, perfect. Perfect. Well, Jeff, let me um, do our little goodbye spiel here, but hang out for just a second. Um, and and we'll, we can chat a little bit afterwards. I want to ask you a couple of questions about Phoenix. <laughs> so thank you so much uh, to our listeners for, for tuning into our, our humble program. And if you have the means, please leave us a, a review or a rating on our podcast, because not only does it help our show, of course, but it helps all of the stuff that our guests do like Jeff Drake, it helps spread the word on what they're doing. And so this is the born too late podcast signing off. Bye now. <laughs> <laughs>